1: Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We have crossed the threshold from March into April, and that means that, in many ways, seniors are now in the spotlight. They have some big decisions to make before May 1st arrives, and one of the biggest aspects of that decision has to do with the cost of college and how to pay for it. So, joining me to talk a little bit about borrowing to pay for higher education is one of my colleagues out east from the college finance team, Beth Feinberg-Keenan. Hey, Beth.
2: Hey, Ian. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Welcome to the show. Uh, There is so much that goes into a college financial aid package. Sometimes there's grant money, which is great. There can be work study, but there is also this fairly large portion uh, that might be connected to loans. And so we wanted to talk a little bit with folks on the show today about how to be informed before it's time to borrow for higher ed. And you're the expert. So I just want to start with a very basic question. There are a lot of different types of loans out there. Can you identify those for our listeners just so we know what we're talking about here and what to expect when we might get or try to understand that financial aid offer from a school.
2: Sure, Ian, I can definitely do that. So for families who have received financial aid packages already, you may have seen federal student loans on your children's financial aid packages. So it could be a subsidized loan. It could be an unsubsidized loan. It could be a combination of the two. And... If your student was offered a subsidized student loan, it meant that or it means that you have eligibility for need based financial assistance. So when you filed for financial aid, you qualified for need based financial aid, and your student was offered a subsidized student loan. And the maximum that they can borrow under that type of loan is $3,500 their freshman year. Okay. If they go, if they're receiving that full three thousand five hundred dollars, then they're likely receiving an additional two thousand dollars in an unsubsidized student loan. Okay. There's okay. no need based component to that unsubsidized, unsubsidized student loan portion, and I'll talk about that you know in a minute. But if they don't qualify at all for any type of need based financial aid, then yours, the student can still borrow, but it's likely that the entire loan is going to be unsubsidized, okay. which means okay. that interest is going to accumulate while they're in school. So that's important to keep in mind that it's not an interest-free loan or it's a subsidized portion. Interest doesn't start to accumulate until late after graduation after after their grace period.
1: Can I ask a question there? I just wanna, for students who don't complete their four years of education, but they do receive a subsidized loan, let's say for year one or year two, mm-hmm. and then they leave after that second year, if they take a gap year or if they just don't return to school, at what point does that interest start to accumulate on repayment for that loan?
2: So that's a great question, Ian. So if for a student who doesn't return or a student who takes a gap year, they have a six-month grace period on that loan. Okay. and Interest will start to accrue after that six-month period of time and they enter into repayment. Okay. But in your scenario where you said if somebody goes on a gap year, so yes, that they've used that six-month grace period, they could very likely go into repayment for that next six months, but let's say they return back to school. If they return back to school, they can place their loan into in-school deferment and they'll regain the interest subsidy on that subsidized portion. And when they graduate, let's say that they continue, you know, the other two or three years and they get their college degree, they no longer have a six month grace period mm-hmm. on that loan. They've already That's used true. it. They have 30 days and they're going to enter repayment 30 days after they finish their, their degree.
1: Okay. Okay, gotcha that that's helpful to know. So that six month period is a one time period before the interest starts to accu- accrue. you can't you don't reset that six months every time you re-enter school.
2: Correct. They'll only have okay. a six month base period on new loans that they've taken out. So if that person took that gap year and they took out new loans for their last two, three years, they'll have a six month base period on those loans, not not on the loans that they took out pre-gap
1: period. Gotcha. Okay. That's very helpful. Now you've mentioned, you put some dollar amounts attached to these. It was sound like 3,500 for freshmen for the subsidized loan, 2000 and unsubsidized loan. I'm not great at math, but I'm adding those up (laughs) and I'm thinking about the cost of college these days and $5,500 seems low. It seems like maybe there's more now. am, Am I wrong about that? Is there more that families can potentially borrow? And if they need more money, what sources can they go to?
2: So you're right, Ian. When you look at the cost of college today, that $5,500 doesn't go very far when you're looking at in-state publics, when you're looking at out-of-state publics and private colleges. It might mm-hmm. cover the cost of you know a, a community college for tuition and mm-hmm. fees. And some families, when they receive the financial aid packages they might have seen or the schools that their students are getting accepted to, they might have been packaged with what's called as a, a plus loan. Mm-hmm. And it's another federal loan for parents. And parents might be thinking like, hey, this is great. I don't have to pay anything. My entire cost of attendance is covered. We have student loan. We have maybe some institutional money. And we have this plus loan that covers the balance. But that's a parent loan. So if parents don't want to borrow that loan, then they can opt not to take it out. But then they need to know like, okay, like what am I going to do to cover that shortfall? And there are also private loans because you ask, hey, what are my other options? Where am I going to find all of this information? So there's also private loans out there. There are many private loan companies that offer loans to students. And one question I often get from parents, and I had this question yesterday, was like we hear about students taking out all of this, like all of this debt, like how can they do that with just this $5,500? And yes, it goes up slightly each year, but these private loans that students are taking out, that's what can increase the overall debt that, that students have. Yeah, And parents, you need to co-sign on these loans or somebody has to co-sign because your students haven't established credit. Your students aren't likely to have a strong enough income to say that they can repay that loan. So they're going to need a credit worthy co-signer to take that loan out with them.
1: Yeah, that's that's understandable. And I think you know, that that's what raises a lot of the, Concern, I think one of the things that's interesting is that people look at these financial aid packages and they see a menu of options that have been presented to them. And I think a lot of families think, okay, well, here's the situation. Like, this is it. I got to do these things that have been laid out for me. But Don't families have the opportunity to pick and choose the different ways that they want to enter into these loan agreements based on what's going to be best for their family, what their college savings account looks like, et cetera? How do they choose what to do and what not to do? Do they even have a choice?
2: They do have a choice. So if borrowing is part of the plan and how your family is going to pay for college, I always try to encourage families to at least have the student take out their student loan first, Because that's really the only pure student loan in the student's name. And when you compare it to like other, like the the plus loan and you compare it to other private loans, the student loans are likely going to be the lowest interest rate option available to families. But I always want a family to take a step back. I want them to think about in what you mentioned savings. Like what have you saved? Disposable income, you know, what are you paying for your kids' day? Is your child like a ski racer? Are they dancing? Are they, you know, playing travel sports? I mean, yesterday, at a family, and they told me they paid ten thousand dollars a year for their child for extracurricular activities. Yeah. So multiply that by four. That's forty thousand dollars of cash flow that they won't necessarily be paying when the student's going to school. Well, they will be paying for it, but they can redirect it because right. they're not paying for ski racing and they're not paying for competitive dance and other extracurricular activities. Right. So. If a school is offering a family, a parent loan, and you figure out that, hey, like I can borrow $30,000 or I can borrow whatever that dollar amount is, take a step back. Don't sign on the dotted line. Figure out what those resources are that you have and borrow only what you need. Because these loans can get expensive.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And
2: you're doing this for year one. But if your student's going to school for two years or for four years, multiply that by the number of years. And if this is your first child going to college, multiply that by how many children you're going to be putting potentially through school.
1: It's a great point. I think a lot of people will think, okay, here we got to, we got to scrape things together and we can make it work. And they look at that calculation for that year one. And they say, all right, we can, we can afford this with these loans, Mm -hmm. but you're pointing out, you got to keep in mind that there's going to be four years here. Um, And, frankly paying for just 1 year of college and then leaving is much worse much much worse than going for all 4 years and getting that degree because the degree ultimately is is what's really going to going to matter for that student as they're heading off into the workforce um i wanted to ask you i don't know if you have an answer for this question but there's been so much conversation in the national news around interest rates um the interest rates that are set by the fed how those are being raised their effect on all of these other different aspects of borrowing and i'm curious whether that has affected the repayment rates for student loans or has re- affected the repayment rates for parent plus loans as well.
2: Well, right now, because we're in a very unique situation, because especially specifically with federal loans at currently at a 0% interest rate, it hasn't necessarily affected too much because right now we have the freeze the pause That's right. that nobody's necessarily making payments. I mean, yes, there are families who are making payments, but it is a question that we often get asked about like what are we anticipating rates to be in the future as families are looking to put their plan together? Because right now, I think we're in an interesting, we're in an interesting situation. Interest rates are going up and families have also lost money on their investments. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to figure out what makes the most amount of sense. Do we keep our investments invested maybe a couple more years, a year or two when we use them in the sophomore, junior and senior year. But if we're borrowing, what are the rates that we're going to be looking at borrowing? So for families who are concerned about rates, number one, for the federal rates, I mean, there's a likely likely chance that they're likely going to be going up. Hmm. And we should know in about maybe six weeks, six to eight weeks, what those rates are going to be for the federal loans, for the subsidized and unsubsidized loan. And for the plus loan, private loans are really tied toward, you know, really, you know, tied to prime and then based on the credit, history, the credit worthiness of the borrower. So families who you're, if you're concerned, pull your credit report, pull your credit score, you know, see kind of make sure that everything's in checks and balance to make sure that you know what a lender might be looking at. And you can start applying May and June to see if you get pre-approved and do shop around. I mean, I always encourage families to shop around for for student loans because you wanna make sure that you're getting a good interest rate uh, what the fees are on those loans, and also a repayment term that's going to work for that family.
1: Yeah, shopping if around you know, is. You know. I, I, I wanted to ask about shopping around because that's such an interesting concept. And I think you know when <laughs> I hear, even thinking about things like you need a new roof for your house, get multiple bids, or you you need a plumber to come, have have multiple different organizations come. I think that feels daunting. The idea of shopping around for different loans also feels challenging, and it's a, it's a much bigger expense potentially with some real pitfalls if you make the wrong choice in terms of rates um, and, and how the repayment rules uh, fall in line with particular loans. How should people shop around? What should they be looking for? Are there resources that they can go to that will help them to identify stronger loan options versus weaker ones?
2: Yeah. So depending on where the student lives, sometimes states have their own state loan option. Like I live in Massachusetts. So we have a loan in Massachusetts called the MeFA loan. Rhode mm-hmm. Island has a loan. Connecticut has a loan. So there are some states that have state loans and they might offer a lower interest rate than some of these big, you know, big names like a Sally Mae, Discover, Citizens Bank that offer uh, education loans. Mm-hmm. So that's the first place. The second place is if a family has a relationship with a credit union check with the credit union because they might be able to get a lower rate with the loan with, with their credit union that they already have an established relationship. That's and great. then colleges typically have tools on their website where families can pull up a, a list of different lenders that colleges have worked with in the past. So that's another good tool to use. And they will give you like ranges of like, this is what the rate of interest the range for interest rates are for fixed and variable. Pick a couple apply pre, apply for them and see what you get as a rate.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then if you're doing that within like a two week period of time, kind of like, you know, if you're car shopping, you know, going to different dealerships, you're not going to do it like spread out necessarily six months, but you're going to do it within a short period of time. It's not going to impact your credit score. You're not going to necessarily be, it's not going to increase your rate at one lender over another lender because you're doing this within like a two I to three, week, three, yeah. two, to three yeah. week, two to three week period of time. And lenders know that you're shopping around. So I would, you know, I would look at those um, options, compare what you get for rates, look at what the fees are, and also look at what the repayment terms are, because some of them you could get lower rates if you choose to start paying the loan back immediately mm-hmm. versus wait until after the student graduates or even opting to say, hey, I'm going to pay interest only, at least while the student's in the school, and then go into paying for principal and interest after they
1: a lot of potential things to potential to consider there and weighing those those strengths and weaknesses across those loans we've got just a couple of minutes and i wanted to just ask you as a family is thinking about this especially a parent of a senior they're heading off for higher ed let's say for the first time in their family they they're trying to figure this out should they be thinking about loans just for this year and renegotiating and finding new loans every single year? Or should they really be thinking about a plan for the entirety of those four years? How would you recommend families think about that?
2: I want them to think about an entirety for the entire four years. Okay, um, They're not borrowing what they need for the entire four years up front, but they're planning for the entire four years. Because if somebody is saying, I'm going to switch around from lender to lender, think about keeping track of that when they go into repayment I'm not going to be repaying one lender. I'm going to be paying four lenders or mm. three lenders. Mm-hmm. I know I wouldn't necessarily want to be in that situation because it's going to be a lot to keep track of. Um, but typically if you have a relationship with one, you're looking at the best rate as long as your credit doesn't change that because drastically you should be looking at similar rates in the future too.
1: Okay. Uh, great advice. I think there's, it's obviously a very complex uh you know, challenge. I think figuring out how these loans all come together. I want to put a, a plug in for everyone that we are doing uh, listener questions next week. We will be doing them again a few weeks after that. And so if you do have questions around specific loans, please get at us um, at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com or on any of our social media sites, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, you can send us a question and we will be back in touch with you um, as, as quickly as we can, or even potentially answer it here on the air. So uh, Beth, thank you so much for walking us through some of the, the loan stuff. I think it's, it's a challenge, but it's really important that people have this information. So I appreciate you coming on.
2: Thanks Ian for having me, Jay.
1: Of course. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about what we have seen as far as trends in college admission this year through this cycle. So you won't want to miss it. Stick around.
4: voice america at facebook.com forward slash voice for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts
0: college admissions can be stressful but bright horizons college coach is here to help
4: Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you.
0: To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the
4: show.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. If you are watching this on any of our social media channels, you can see already that we've got a double... Helping of guests in this segment. And that's partly because we're doing a double segment to talk through the trends that we are observing in this latest admission cycle. Some things that are new, some things that are maybe not so new. And we'd love to talk through them. So I'm going to start with the top of my screen, which I think is just pretty random and introduced uh, my colleague, Zaragoza Guerra. Uh, welcome to the show, Zaragoza. Thank you, Ian. Glad to be here. Nice to have you. And then, of course, we have down below me, but never beneath me, uh, Jennifer Simons. Hey, Jen, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thanks for having us.
1: Glad to have you both. And you you put together a really nice outline um, of some of the different things that we've observed. And I, I, I guess I would start stipulate that we're still picking through some of the data. We're trying to see exactly how things have shaken out across a wide range of schools. But I wanted to start with some stuff that we may have seen this year that is different or that potentially points to changes uh, directionally in the application process for students. Uh, Zaragoza, are there any particular things that you saw that really jumped out to you um, in the 2022-23 admission cycle?
5: Yeah, and and this is a, a little bit different, but it's also still part of the same trajectory that we've been seeing. And I would say that you know, a lot of my students are oftentimes when they're crafting their overall college list are looking to uh, some of the UCs. Um, you know, even if they're out of state, uh, outside of California, um, they're looking at the the UCs quite frequently. Oftentimes, it's because you know the, there's one application and you can apply to multiple schools, so they try to in- increase their odds of of getting into. Uh, many more schools um, than usual. And, and sometimes they might, um, you know, perhaps uh, add a few schools more without necessarily taking a closer look at them just because it's so easy to apply to them. Yeah. And yeah. I think what I found this year is that there was a lot of disappointment, particularly with out-of-state um, students, non-Californian uh, students, um, in that they saw many more wait lists than than usual, um, and and there were also a few surprises in in terms of some of, some of the UCs. So, uh, for instance, you know a lot of out of state students might not necessarily apply to UC Irvine. I I think as a lot of schools in California, a lot of the UCs have become a lot more selective. There are probably a lot of of state students who add it just because it's easy to add. And I think they were a bit surprised and taken back um, by you know, the fact that UC Irvine happens to be a, a pretty selective school and um, many of them might not necessarily be aware of that. Um, and I think you know in recent years it's become the third most selective UC. And I think that took a lot of students by surprise. Yeah. I think what also took a lot of students by surprise were uh, the, were those wait lists um, for out of state um, students. I, you know, the UCs are starting to um, accept more Californians. You know, they are the flagships. Um, you know, it's California that's paying those taxes to to keep them going and. And so, a lot of uh, students from out of state, I think, were a bit surprised um, by that and and by the challenges, um, you know, all the challenges challenges that it takes to, to get into into the UC system.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's California is a big state. It is a populous state. It is a state that is filled with some really talented academic students, and they made a decision to prioritize Californians more in their uh, application process. Just to put some numbers on it. and 21%. You hear those numbers, you might think Duke, Northwestern, University of Virginia, like some really, really selective schools. Those are the admit rates for UCLA, for UC Berkeley, and for UC Irvine, respectively. And when I started here almost 10 years ago, UC Berkeley and UCLA were about 25% admit rates. So it is a trend that has been... Sharp, I think, over that period of time, but it is especially pronounced now that they
5: are prioritizing Californians, especially. What's also surprising is, you know, we've been tracking some of these numbers over the past couple of years. And I I think even last year, we saw that there were about 30 schools throughout the country that have admit rates under 10%. And, you know, for a public university uh, to have an admit rate under ten percent, and Berkeley is not that far behind from UCLA. Yeah, that that's um, pretty notable, and I think um, that's why you're you you know you're seeing a lot of disappointment, particularly with out-of-state students, and I would imagine a lot Californians of Californians.
1: Californians well. as well. Certainly, certainly. Um, and, and UCLA, 150,000 applications nearly. Berkeley had over 125,000 applications. When you look at an admit rate, one of the ways that it can go down is is more people are applying. And and I think the ease of the UC application points to that. Um, Jen, I, I want to get your perspective uh, out east and wonder if you're seeing any unusual shifts or changes in trends for schools uh, out yeah. on the East Coast or in the Midwest. I mean, you don't have to focus on the East Coast.
3: No, no, no. I, I might not- want to. A lot of my kids. Um, I, I mean, I would. I would second what Zaragoza said, but with state universities in general. So um, a lot of my kids apply, as you said you know, out of their, out of the state system. Um, What I'm noticing, A, so I'm in Massachusetts and a lot of kids are realizing, thank goodness, that the University of Massachusetts is actually a really great school. Um, I think I've seen it in the six years that I've worked at Bright Horizons College Coach really increase in popularity, which makes me really happy. Um, But I still have students that apply, of course, to places like Wisconsin and, you know, Michigan, perennially, whatever, anyway, continually popular. Yeah. Um so that's definitely like the, the schools that I thought would be um, you know, relatively safe, you know, that's probable for for my kids here, really high flyers like Wisconsin, which I love and they enroll in waitlisted, a bunch of really, really strong kids. That was shocking to me. So um, I think that colleges are not really knowing what to do. Maybe um, with the test optional um, situation and the increase that it has, you know, led to in a lot of the applicant pools. So that's like a big change. So basically everything that Zaragoza said about the UC system, I saw with other large state universities that have been Much more selective. I've also seen.
1: I'm sorry. I want to pause on that real quick because I think that that's something that I have felt as well in a lot of the conversations that I've been having with families is. There are these different kind of cascading effects that you see all across uh, enrollment management. I think one of the most notable is when you know more selective schools go to a wait list, they pull students who are in another school that causes them to go to the wait list and so on and so forth. There's this kind of cascading effect. But I think we're starting to see that with public flagship universities as well as Berkeley, UCLA, University of Texas, University of Michigan, UNC Chapel Hill, UVA. I think that's kind of like the more selective group as they get even more selective Students are now applying to like your Georgias and your Wisconsin's and it, those are getting even more selective. And you're pointing out UMass Amherst. Um, I've got University of Oregon here where I live. That still is somewhat untouched by yeah. that effect. But I wonder what's going <laughs> over time as students start to say, well, now I got to apply to Oregon and UMass and University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Great schools that are not any worse than the flagship universities, in my view. They're great but they're not yet selective. They're not yet getting that volume. Um, Is that something that you're perceiving? And is it something that you have any worries about?
3: Oh, no questions. Yeah, I'll let you answer. But I just University of Vermont, when they went to early decision, I thought, okay, here we go. They just had their first early decision round. That was a place that I felt comfortable, you know, sending a wide range of students to, you know, to attract a lot of students. It's one of the few um, state universities that's in a a city that students think is cool. Um, And so, you know, the same with you know, uh CU Boulder and places like that, I'm definitely seeing um yes, I mean the tide is bringing everybody to levels of greater competition. And it sort of scares me a little bit yeah. that good kids, you know, it's just this unpredictability, but also who else are they shutting out? You know what I mean? We talk about access and why the state universities exist. Um and is the is the sort of equation being shifted a little bit too much to
5: out-of-state kids, I don't know. Yeah, I'm wondering. Yeah, one of the things, to you know, as you're considering, you know, particularly with these flagships, is that they provide an incredible education at a discount for students, yeah. and the more out-of-state students that you take, um, the less in-state students get to take advantage of that incredible discount. You know, as we're talking about prices uh, for tuition and, and the cost of college, um, you know, the this is a saving grace for a lot of families you know that that flagship and access to that flagship. So I, I can you know see the conversation shift and you know a number of states you know particularly that you know are booming in terms of population, hey we need to you know provide this opportunity for many more of our in-state students, particularly so that they can get the discount. If we want to increase uh, the opportunity for you know many more students to to go to college and 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 you know get that incredible education that the flagship provides. So you can probably yeah. see that mm, a domino effect happening. I, I mean I remember, you know, as Jen you know mentioned, you know, when I was working in Massachusetts, students would look at certain states and think, hey, you know, I can, you know, count on that as my probable school, or uh, you know perhaps my my possible school, and you know that has slowly shifted, you know, and they're becoming a lot more selective and and so then they gravitate towards the new state and then the new state and then the right. new state. and so you're you're seeing um, you know students consider many more state universities that i I don't think you know twenty years ago an out- of state student would have necessarily been considering in, in great numbers. Right, and I I think I think it is important to acknowledge, and I I
1: said this in passing, but I want to restate that these are great schools. Like many of these that are not particularly selective, um, still have a really wonderful opportunity. My hope is that when my kids get to college age, that University of Oregon is still really great for students who want to stay in state, and and that there's an opportunity for them there because they have a great honors college. It's it's closer to home. It's going to be more cost effective for us as a family, and I think. My hope is that students are able to shift their mindset around what constitutes a good college Mm -hmm. before having to see the selectivity numbers that potentially reinforce that for them, right? Like it shouldn't take going below 30% admit rate for a student to say, oh, that's a good school all of a sudden. No, they just have more applications now. They are the same school that they were five, 10 years ago. Um, and and I, I think hoping that, that students start to see that and can get ahead of those trends, I, I think, is is really something I'm, I'm cheering on a little bit. Um, Jen, you look like you had something that you wanted to add. I just about- want to
3: add, because I just thought of it, University of Florida, because they continue to require the SATs, is a little bit in a different category. Um, and so that's interesting. I wonder if it's also because kids that... Um, would otherwise want to apply test optional and apply to University of Florida are not applying there if it's sort of trickling into other places. But what I've noticed here in the Northeast is I saw a shift um, several years ago to interest in Southern schools. Um, you know, I couldn't really understand I think it was a TikTok phenomenon for kids applying to <laughs> Alabama and you know, big, you know, Clemson and places like that, the great schools, but like it's unusual. And now I'm seeing the reverse, parents saying I don't want my daughter, quite frankly, to go to, you know, maybe um, certain places that, you know, the the politics of our country is informing, um, I think, choices in a way that it hasn't in my career.
1: Yeah, very, very interesting to see some of those. And there have been some data around those that have been published in many of the higher education journals. One in four students, I think they said, um, I think it was in the Chronicle of Higher Education, pointed out that one in four students decided not to apply to an institution because of the politics in that state which I think is really interesting. I I think it's always been an informant in student decision-making, but perhaps is a little bit more explicit uh, these days than it has been in the past. Um, I had something else I wanted to ask, and I've just lost lost track of it. Darn it. You know what we'll do. Let's go to a break. We're going to take a break because we have to take a break anyway. But Zaragoza and and Jen are going to be back for our next segment. And we're going to talk about some other things that we've seen, perhaps some lessons that we have already learned that students have not yet learned that we want to reinforce for them. So uh, stick around. We'll be back with our third segment discussing admissions trends. Don't go away.
4: Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
0: College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more.
4: Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Behind doors. Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio.
0: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q and A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome back to getting in a college coach conversation. Um, I don't think I said my name at the top of the show. My name's Ian Fisher, but if you listen to the show all the time, which you should be doing, you would already know that. Um, we have, by the way, we have a fourth host who will be joining us uh, in our host rotation. Uh, she will be familiar to many of you who are longtime fans of the show Shannon Vasconcelos. I believe that her debut as a host is coming up next week. So keep an eye out for that. I think that's really exciting news for us internally and and hopefully for all of you listeners as well. Um, Back to our conversation about admissions trends. Uh, I think it's probably bad practice from a data management standpoint for me to always pull my own personal experience as representative of trends, but I'm going to do it anyway to say that over the time that I've been here, I have seen a real sharp increase in the number of students that are interested in pursuing computer science. I have not seen an increase of schools that those students are considering as viable options that has been commensurate with the number of students. It's still the same group of schools. You can close your eyes and see 10 to 15 of them um, just over and over in your head, UIUC, Georgia Tech, University of Washington, they just start cycling through there, right? Zaragoza, I want to start with you because I know you work with a lot of students who are interested in technology, um, interested in CS. Um, What are we observing around applicants who are pursuing this area of study? And and what are some lessons that you might impart to the next class of CS applicants?
5: I, I might say to widen the scope a little, and be a little bit more adventurous beyond that group of schools that we we normally see, and you know part of the reason is exactly as you stated, there aren't that many more <laughs> schools yeah. that right. students are considering. There are many more students who want to do computer science, and so the admit rates for a lot of those schools um, has you know diminished over time, um, and you know. The University of Washington, you know, if you're an out-of-state student, it's much harder for you to get in. You know, oftentimes there's certain schools uh, on on a college list and, and you know, it'll appear as a, a, a regular reach school for a student or a probable school or a possible school. And I have to inform the family, hey, because you're either from out-of-state or because you're considering computer science, let's up the notch on that one. Yeah. Okay, so that there are no surprises in the end. Um, you know, when uh, an early decision is supposed to, to help you, it might not necessarily do that much good for a Carnegie Mellon uh, if you're opting for computer science. So uh, I would say, you know, the, the list of schools that are out there, you know, perhaps go a little bit more beyond that. Um, you know, there are going to be a lot of really great. Um, colleges, universities that might not necessarily be comprehensive universities, because you know the fact of the matter is, the list that we're seeing in terms of uh, that uh, of colleges that excite students with respect to computer science happen to be, you know, a lot of those flagships or institutes of technology, those tech schools, those uh, public flagships that have broad, robust computer science programs, um, and there are going to be some smaller colleges and universities that. Might be offering computer science, perhaps not necessarily from an engineering vantage point, but more uh, from a mathematical or science vantage point. And you know, if you're one of those students who might not necessarily want to go into engineering, but you do want to study computer science, you know, consider you know some of those possibilities because it might not you might not necessarily need a school with a robust engineering department, Um, you know, you could be pursuing a a Bachelor of Arts degree in computer science. It doesn't have to be a Bachelor of Science. And I don't think there are going to be any prospective employers who are going to necessarily notice the difference. Uh, The reality is you're getting a computer, you're your computer science major and your courses are more than likely going to be the same. It's all of those distribution requirements and those core requirements that might be different uh, between those two kinds of uh, degrees. So, we the scope.
1: And with respect to the employer, I think you put your finger on something that's really important here is that a lot of the reason the computer science applicants are looking at the same set of schools is a perception that this is an important ticket for them as they think about their professional outcomes. And I've had conversations with you know, parents who work for major technology companies, and we'll just ask them point blank: When you're hiring somebody to join your team, how important is it to you where they went to college? And they will say, "Not at all important." In fact, uh, there are many other things that I care about much more than where they went to school. And so, I would encourage students to also look within their communities of people that are doing the kinds of work that they find interesting. Ask them what their path was. Where did they go to school? What did they study? How did they learn? the skills that they use every day at work, and see whether there are, in fact, many pathways for those students mm-hmm. to get to an outcome that they might find exciting, that don't necessarily require that you go to one of those particular schools within mm-hmm. that CS space. And it takes a little digging, but I, th- I think you're right that broadening your horizons is a really great strategy there.
5: What's interesting, you know, the question that you posed to some of those families, I sometimes pose it to some of the parents, where did you go to school? Because, you know, many of those parents <laughs> work in tech, they are, they did computer science and, you know, the list is pretty broad. Yeah. It's rare that I encounter someone who studied computer science who's um, not working or, you know, it's, it's such an in-demand um, uh, profession
1: in demand profession, I think also growing. There are, we saw, we talked about this back in January when we got together as a team, but there's about a 240% increase in the number of students that uh, say they're interested in pursuing computer science, the second fastest growing major behind the different health professions, um, which is quite striking. I also think that it's important to have. If you're looking at CS, you're looking at engineering, it's important to have a really good explanation for why this is interesting to you as opposed to, well, it seems like the right answer, right? And I think that that is something you talked about, no surprises. For us, sometimes there aren't surprises for students. If they say they're interested in CS, but there's no example of an interest in CS reflected in their application, we know that they're not going to be especially successful with some of those those institutions because of the kinds of applicants that they're already turning away are competitive and able and capable. So it sometimes feels like it's a little bit of a crapshoot, but I think that there is some aspect of predictability when you're looking at students who are not competitive uh, for some of these spaces. Jen, I wanted to, we talked a little bit in the in-between about that sense of unpredictability and just not knowing exactly who's getting in where How did that show up for you uh, this year? Did you see consistency across uh, where students were getting in? Did you see, did it feel like someone just grabbed a handful of darts and threw them at a dartboard without looking? Like What what was this uh, season like for you in terms of expectations and reality?
3: other i would say apart from the the change that i noted with the publics some of the publics um i would say no it absolutely was not like a dartboard it was very predictable and i would say that the difference of you know a couple of percentage points and let's say like dartmouth or other super duper selective schools like it it wasn't i mean i i felt it i noticed it but there was never an occasion when i said to a kid yes, I I think you'll get into Harvard. Like, that just doesn't, like, I don't know who that kid is, right? So it didn't change anything. I have a family now, and I absolutely adore them. And the dad cautioned me against sort of telling the daughter as a junior that she's not going to be accepted to X, Y, and Z, because I'm very blunt. And I I just don't, like, do you want the pain to come now? Or do you want the pain to come when she does, in fact, get denied um, from these places? Like, we could do it either way. And so, There were no surprises in that regard. Like kids that were sort of possible, like on the cusp, I I run lists, as you know, for all of our, you know, our corporate clients along with the team. And I've never seen any of the IV plus school anywhere other than a reach, even for the most perfect kids. So, you know, yes, they got a lot of disappointment, but we expected that. And sort of on the flip side of that, as, you know, my colleagues have uh, verified and has been my experience The kids that applied sort of reasonably within the early decision and early action, you know, places for the most part had a lot of great options going into regular. And so, you know, it was it it was the most sort of I called it a bloodshed a little bit like year you know, it was brutal in a lot of ways. But I, I have to just say it wasn't unexpectedly brutal, if that makes sense. Like there were no surprises other than what I indicated.
1: And I think it's important to help our listeners to understand that when Jen says it wasn't unexpectedly brutal, she's speaking with her decades of experience in admission and counseling and working with students. And so when she talks, she knows what she's talking about. And so if you have... You're, you felt it to be unexpectedly brutal. I think it's because of, a, in in many cases, a lack of an understanding of, of just what we're really talking about here and what we're looking at here. And that's part of why we want to come on the show to talk about these things for families. There are no students where I would say, you're going to get into fill in the blank for one of the top 15 schools. That I just would never, ever do that. And I would never be surprised if a student didn't get into any one of those schools. There are students where I would say, I wouldn't be surprised if you got into those schools too. And then there are most students where I would be shocked if they got admitted, right? Like that's just the reality of this highly, highly selective admission. It's very similar to, are you going to be an Olympic athlete or not? You kind of know it when you see it, uh, but it still is hard to make the Olympic team. Zara Gosar, are there things that you're noticing about the students who are most pleased with how things went this year? Setting aside perhaps the kids that got into their number one choice, their ED, and they were done months ago. Are there any trends around student approach to this process that you can call
5: out? I, I think going in with a little sense of humility, you know, in, in that sense that, you know, those students who, who went in with a, a much smaller list um, who were a lot more reasonable um, with, uh, their choice of schools, and who were very happy with their set of probables, with their set of possibles, um, you know, and who weren't so uber-focused on their reaches, I think a lot of those students came out pleasantly surprised. Yeah. You know, I, I can think of two students, you know, much like we talked about, you knew who I wasn't surprised who got into those uber-selective schools, but, you know, they complimented it. Um, you know, they, they went in very focused. You know, there was this one young woman who wanted to be an aerospace engineer. She needed to find a school for aerospace engineering. You know, there aren't that many out there, right? And she wanted ROTC. You know, there aren't that many that, you know, kind of meet that fold. And so she wasn't necessarily going after those uber selective schools some happened to be on it just the ones that offered what she was looking for and that yeah. were a really great fit for her and because she was such a great fit you know this was someone who you know screamed aerospace engineering and wanting to be a pilot and and so forth he, he you know it it um you know she went in came out with with very happy results i think some of those students who you know overreached Okay, and um, you, you know, I, I, and and I I will say this to to everyone, you know, strongly consider, you know, the your your early admission strategy, early decision. You know, there there are you know that's you know strategic. Okay, um, picking a school just simply because it's uber selective and you just want to find out if you're going to get in.
1: That is not us.
5: strategic. We'll tell you um, because it's uh, you miss out on the strategy, and then you're left on the in the regular decision pool, which is a bloodbath. Okay, you lose all predictability <laughs> in the regular decision pool. I mean, I mean, I, I, I think uh, most of my colleagues will, would agree um, on that point. There's a little bit more predictability in terms of the early decision pool. Um, But when it comes to regular decision, who knows? It's wild.
1: It's the wild west out there.
5: I love what you said about
1: humility. I I immediately thought of a couple of students that I worked with this year who had every reason to be super confident going into this process. And yet, were very thoughtful and very uh, quick to ask for support. And we're like, could this be be better? You know, there was just a humility to them. And they, they got some really great decisions at the end of the day. I also think that students who could clearly articulate why the schools that they were applying to were on their list. Like if you ask them, why are you applying to this school? Why are you applying to that school? If they had an answer for each of those questions, they almost to a person are happy at this point because there are things they love. I was talking to a student I work with yesterday who I lo- he's so smart and interesting. He got denied from a lot of really selective schools. And we talked about that. He knew it was potentially coming, but he's also super stoked about the options that he has to choose from because he applied to them with intention and there was something specific he was looking for. And that was really refreshing in that conversation. Jen, I want you to, is there anything that you noticed trend wise among your students? I want to give you the last word on this, um, that people can maybe, channel into this year's application season.
3: I I always say that the earlier you start and the earlier you finish, the happier you'll be. It didn't necessarily work out for everybody. And honestly, I still have kids that are dealing with wait lists and they're really burnt out, but I will not ever go back on saying, if you go back to senior year with everything set, You know, in terms of your essays, for example, you will be happy. And I just hope that the kids go, you know, that are juniors right now aren't scared off by any negative results or any positive results or what happened to their friends or anything like that. Like, just, you know, focus and just do your job, as my coach Bill Belichick says.
1: Oh, my God. You have to finish this with mention of the Patriots. Like, what are you doing? Wait until Shannon is hosting the show. And then you can talk all about Boston sports as much as you'd like which is a great segue to remind you that Shannon Vasconcelos will be hosting the show next week. They'll be talking about how to ask for letters of recommendation from your teachers, which is a great uh, thing that you can do if you want to start early, as Jen recommends. And then we will also be answering your listener questions uh, as they come in. Zaragoza and Jen, this was a really fun segment. I wish we had more time to talk about this, uh, but thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. All right, everyone, we will see you next week. Uh, Recommend us to a friend, give us a five-star rating, and have a wonderful weekend.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.